0: Hey there, everyone. So do you ever get tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Do you ever get the urge to cut through the world of everyday surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the wisdom of podcast is for you. Because in this podcast, we explore great works of philosophy and literature and art and try to pull out of them what's most invigorating and interesting and inspiring. Whether they come from the works of uh, Plato, or Dostoevsky, or Picasso, here we explore ideas that move mountains and rock the soul. So, come join us, won't you? Come worship at the altar of ideas and come celebrate the dancing of thought. And... Don't be afraid of the leaping sparks, as you can be certain of one thing, they will kindle the light inside of you. Welcome to the Wisdom of. Coming up today, the top philosophy quotes of all time.
1: Over, over many episodes, I think it's become somewhat obvious that we're, we're sporting fans here at the Wisdom Of. Now, I could be wrong, shocking absolutely no one outside of my mother, but one thing that I like about, let's just call them uh, non-North American sports, is they really seem, at least to my eyes, have fewer, fewer interviews and quotes from athletes. It might be the kind of Tower of Babel aspect to international leagues. Like, for example, it took me forever to find out that David Beckham, soccer super stud, he he sounds like a chipmunk with a pinched nose. But in North America, we're absolutely inundated, flooded with inane quotes from athletes. To be fair, athletes that are only asked inane questions like, uh, what do you have to do to do better? But... On top of all the inane stuff, there's the kind of, I don't know what to call them, the dopey quotes, the kind of quotes that probably, when I say probably, won't make it to an episode like this. Like, uh, there's a former New York Yankee, Alex Rodriguez. He had a great quote. He said, therapy can be a good thing. It can be therapeutic. Terry Bradshaw, this actually might be an episode. He said, I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. I really kind of identify with that one. And as we've said before, legally, we're required to have a hockey player in these episodes. So there was this guy, probably very few people outside of North America have even heard of him, named Brett Hull. And he was talking about the idea that he was going to get traded from his team. And he said, I'll be sad to go and I wouldn't be sad to go. It wouldn't upset me to leave St. Louis, but it would upset me to leave St. Louis. It's hard to explain. You'll find out one of these days, but maybe you never will. Great quote. That actually might be our next episode.
0: So hit us with the real ones. Wow, a Brett Hull reference. Now, how many philosophy and uh, literature podcasts do that? Uh, We must be from Canada. Yeah, so what are the actual quotes on the menu today? Well, Today we're going to talk about a famous quote from the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard and it's this: Truth is subjectivity. And then we'll discuss the philosopher John Locke's quote which has been loosely translated as the mind is a blank slate. Okay, let's do it. I
1: still I still remember the time when I I fully understood the difference between subjective and objective notions. I was uh, a pretty clever, precocious uh, 25-year-old, and when I found out, I wielded that knowledge at, you know, like with a lot of my stories, I wielded that knowledge at all the bars. Like, anytime anyone said something, I would chime in with, uh, ha, is that an objective truth or merely subjective? Then, miracle of all miracles, after such an intellectual display, I would have my pick of the most charming lasses, and lads for that matter to be my, you know, extremely temporary companion. That said, I don't know if I could have taken Kierkegaard
0: home since he's on some sort of subjectivity keck. So you were a a clever 25-year-old? Um, not to my recollection, at all. But yeah, your, your intellectual displays aside. So, um, let's get to Kierkegaard. So Kierkegaard mentions this connection between truth and subjectivity in several of his works but it seems to me that he says most about it in a work called Concluding Unscientific Postscript. So, well, I'm going to try to say something about how he understands it in that particular work. Okay, well, what's the best place to start? Well, how about with this? So, according to Kierkegaard, the traditional view of the human being is one of the knower, That's to say, as one whose most important capacity is to acquire knowledge. I mean, certainly that was the view of many of the intellectuals of his own time, he thought. Okay, but what does he mean by knower? Well, to be a knower means to take up an attitude of objectivity, which in turn means to suppress your individuality and your personality. That's to say, to see or understand things as they really are means to transcend yourself. It means to rise above your own subjectivity. Only then can you attain real knowledge. Now, this is in effect the scientist's view of knowledge. Now, here's the thing. Kierkegaard thinks that there's something um shallow or and even, well, self-destroying about being or identifying as a knower like this. As always standing back and taking a detached view of things, and that's because for him, we're just not impersonal objective knowers, no, we're each of us finite, particular, subjective individuals, as um he himself says, we're not human beings in general, we're not an abstraction, we're living, existing individuals unique in ourselves. Now, that's not to say that we can't be knowers or seekers after objective knowledge. It's not to say that there isn't a place for that. There is. But for Kierkegaard, it's just not what it means to be truly, truly human. Again, what it means to be truly human is to exist as an individual and not as an abstraction or in a detached way. In a way, you could say that Socrates' famous injunction, know thyself, becomes the categorical imperative here for Kierkegaard. Okay, now, what about this idea of truth? What does he mean, then, when he says truth is subjectivity? Well, in this context... I don't think he takes it to mean anything like, uh, you know, a proposition that's made by us is true as long as we personally believe it or believe it passionately or some such thing. Or to put it another way, maybe, he's not saying that truth is based off of an individual's feelings or opinions. No, I think what he means by truth is this. Truth is being truly human. Or in other words, it's being fully subjective as I've described it. So, it has nothing to do with uh, mathematical or scientific truth or impersonal cognition. And it's not about truth based off of perspectives or feelings. No. It's about being true to your essential nature as an existing being. It's to look intensely inward and be passionately engaged as the particular individual that you are. So, on this account, then, the more you're living objectively, impersonally, detachedly, the more you see yourself in a universal or abstract sense, the more untruth there is, the more untrue you are. Now, all of this fits nicely in with Kierkegaard's uh, religious view, which, by the way, I've discussed before in an episode on Abraham and Isaac. Anyway, for him to be religious, to be in communion with God, is only something that can happen if you completely suspend your reason and your detached intellectual approach and instead take a leap of faith. As um, Kierkegaard himself says, to stand on one leg and prove God's existence is a very different thing from going on one's knees and thanking him. In other words, making a leap of faith requires not objectivity and a rationality and an attitude of disinterestedness, no, but an ongoing passion, and passion is something essentially non-rational and subjective. I mean, for Kierkegaard, it's entirely possible to be the world's most learned theologian and yet be dead inside. And, on the other hand, it's completely possible to be an ignorant, uneducated peasant, yet be vibrantly and genuinely religious. I don't know. I think that at the end of the day, what Kierkegaard wants to do is to warn us to avoid forgetting life by being completely absorbed in objective thought, believing that this is the the highest human pursuit. He wants to offer a corrective against any kind of abstract intellectualism. And um, that corrective is pretty clear. It's living reality. And that, in a nutshell, is what he means by truth is subjectivity. Just last
1: episode, I actually do listen to all the episodes that I'm not on. But last episode, you kind of alluded to us doing some writing that we were working on, a script or two, but you didn't say much about it. But now I think I'm I'm ready to reveal a bit more about it. Give kind of the, the log line or the sizzle pitch or the snagglepuss or whatever Hollywood insiders call it. But here is our fundamental idea. Like, okay, we're working on this in tandem. And my great idea was instead of having a good idea, let's steal one. Let's turn a movie into a TV show. Let's take the Bourne films, you know, Jason Bourne, Matt Damon and all that kind of stuff and turn it into a TV show. Your contribution was just as good. You said, yeah, let's not change anything except for the name of the show and the name of the character. I said, that's great. I said, what do you have? What is your idea for a name for our not Matt Damon amnesiac assassin? You said, get this, the best action hero name possible, John Locke. That is absolutely killer. I said, okay, that is good. John Locke. John Locke's our main hero. Perfect. And what's the show going to be called? Blank Slate. So everyone get prepared sometime in 2023. On your TVs or streaming service, I would look for not Matt Damon, actor to be announced, playing John Locke in Blank Slate.
0: Yeah, we're, we're going to have a, a sure hit, aren't we? I'm actually a bit surprised that we're the first ones to, to come to this idea. I mean, that's how good it is. How can you go wrong with someone called John Locke as your central protagonist? Okay, but speaking of uh, interesting and excellent ideas. So, in a famous passage from his An Essay Concerning Human Understanding, the philosopher John Locke says, Let us then suppose the mind to be, as we say, white paper void of all characters without any ideas. How comes it to be furnished? So, as we see, though he doesn't use these terms, this is the well-known tabula rasa, or scrape tablet, or blank slate idea. Now, basically what John Locke is saying, by calling the mind a, a blank sheet of paper, or a blank slate, is that we're all born without any innate or previously built-in mental content. We're born blank, or um, we start things from scratch, so to speak. In other words, what Locke is saying is that the mind at birth contains nothing. It contains no ideas. Ideas only get imprinted on it through subsequent experience. So, it's experience that so-called writes on the mind by furnishing it with content or material. Now, what John Locke says here is probably the most famous statement of what's known as the empiricist position. And uh, if you don't know, empiricism is basically the view that all knowledge is gained through sense experience, through our sensory perceptions of the outside world. And empiricism is often opposed to what's called um, rationalism, which is the view uh, held by Descartes and many others, that it's reason, not sense experience. That's the ultimate source of human knowledge. And that some, some kind of ideas are innate or present in our mind at or prior to birth. Anyway, so, so Locke was objecting to rationalism, specifically to theories of innate ideas. That's to say, he didn't think that people were born with uh, mathematical ideas inside of them, or eternal truths, or some sort of notion of God. Or whatever. And actually, you know, it's interesting. It's because of his position here that he objected to dogmatic justifications for the political status quo of his own time. For example, he rejected the authority of the church and the idea of the divine right of kings. I mean, kings claimed that they were vessels of God from birth and that they had this uh, divine right to rule. This they assumed was a self-evident truth or fact. But for Locke, there was no such thing. Kings couldn't claim this innate merit or wisdom or divinity, and aristocrats couldn't claim some kind of hereditary superiority. Why? Well, again, because the blank slate undermines all of this. The minds of kings and aristocrats had started out just as blank as everyone else's. Aristocrats had no innate merit or excellence, just as slaves were not innately inferior. And actually, Locke's blank slate view here has had a tremendous influence on much of our thinking, especially during the the 20th century and onwards. Beginning perhaps with the famous behaviorist psychologist B.F. Skinner. The point is, is that we've tended to explain much of our individual and social behavior as a product of, um, socialization, right? We talk about most things being socially constructed. We say that if people are different, it's not because of some hereditary trait or their innate constitution but rather it's because people had different life experiences and histories. Y- you get the point. Now, this sort of view has its detractors. Um, the psychologist Steven Pinker is one of them. In fact, he wrote a book on the blank slate subtitled The Modern Denial of Human Nature. Obviously, Pinker is very critical of the blank slate view beginning with Locke. He asks us, among many other things, to really think about whether boys and girls are interchangeable, whether intelligence is purely a product of the environment, and whether children are born free of selfish tendencies. Now, to say that the answer is yes to all of these is, for Pinker, simply to deny facts about human nature. It's to engage in anti-human theoretical abstraction. It's to let theory get the better of you and to ignore the science. And um, by the way, there are always those interesting twin studies, you know, when identical twins get uh, separated at birth. So what do many of them reveal? Well, to put it simply, what they very clearly show is that identical twins separated at birth share an enormous amount of similarities despite sometimes incredibly vastly different upbringings. Now, here's the thing. Why would this be the case if everyone starts off as a pure blank slate? And um, I'll mention one more interesting thing. So it turns out that when it comes to um, personality dimensions people stay pretty much the same throughout their lives. So, if you're an introvert, say, you pretty much stay an introvert. Well, again, this seems to suggest that many of the characteristics of our personality are predisposed by our brain biology, by our innate constitution. So, I don't know, in one way I understand some of the motivation for the blank slate view. I mean, you know what? Long before Locke, there was a 10th century Islamic philosopher called Avicenna, who held a kind of similar view. He basically said that the human mind at birth was pure potential, without form or content. Now, this idea of pure potential, that's pretty inspiring, right? We definitely don't want to lose that. And of course, it goes without saying that we don't want to lose Locke's liberal egalitarianism. But at the same time, as Pinker warns us, we also don't want to disfigure science and intellectual life in general and let theory and politics get the better of us. Potential is one thing. But to say that we're blank slates on which absolutely anything can be written, well that might be taking things a bit too far. been listening to
1: the wisdom of podcast
0: if you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general visit wisdomofpod.com and as usual we love to read your questions and comments reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on twitter at wisdom underscore pod our next episode animal farm